so I would say that how I have always described it is that all the balls went up into the air and a lot of them have landed, but some of them are still up in the air. So I f I'm still changed and changing. And some of the original me has come back. Some of it's, you know, for good, for better, for worse, has gone for good, I would say. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason, and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who are authors, grief professionals, and ordinary people, all with a unique perspective on grief and loss. Loss and the resulting grief can really have such a profound effect on our lives, and it is my intention that these conversations may provide some comfort, hope, and inspiration to you, our listeners. If you find the podcast supportive, please do consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. Even a euro or a dollar per month can help keep us going. For more grief resources and grief supports, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. On a storm torn shoreline, a woman was standing. Welcome to this episode of Shapes of Grief and today I'm joined by Helen Lamb. Helen, you're very welcome. You started the Dublin Holistic Centre, is that right? Yeah, um, Dublin Wellness Centre now, but yeah, Dublin Holistic Centre, um, we started about 14 years ago. Yeah, so we're on South William Street. Okay, very good. And you're a listener of Shapes of Grief, yes, Helen. Yes, I am. And you also have had a very significant grief journey yourself. Yeah. Will you take us back to, is it seven years ago? Yeah, 2013, the 6th of January. So <laughs> what happened on the 6th of January, Helen? Um, I lost my beautiful husband um, on the 6th of January and um, he'd been unwell for six months. So very short from my perspective. Um, and you know, yet probably long for, by comparison to somebody who's had a very sudden grief, but for me it was very sudden. Um, we had been married for three years and we had a one and a half year old. And he was diagnosed with uh, kidney cancer, with stage four kidney cancer that had metastasized to his bones. Um, so his illness, was very acute um, and filled with a, a lot of uh, a very acute kind of an, uh, um, episodes and visits to hospital and we weren't really at home for any longer than two weeks during that six uh, we were, weren't out of hospital mm. for any longer than two weeks. What was his name Helen? His name was Keenan. Keenan. I love saying his name. Thanks for asking. Keenan. <laughs> Keenan. What does yeah. Keenan mean for those non-Irish speakers? They were little keen, I, um, and so keen, I think, was a uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, I'm not. It's something to do with the. I think Keenan had something to do with on two the they two had they denan. Um, I think he had something to do with them, those kind of ancient fairy people. Okay, so yeah. from some Irish mythical. Yes. It's not a, a, a name I've heard before, yeah. only from you, yeah. Keenan. Yeah. He, he insisted on naming our son uh, an unusual Irish name as well, just to <laughs> follow the line. Phelan. So what does Phelan yeah. mean? A uh, little wolf. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> ah. And I have an Ushin, which is little deer. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Got to send them out to yeah. the forest together. <laughs> so, so by the time Keenan was diagnosed, mm -hmm. he was already stage four and very acutely ill. Yes. Had he, had, how did he discover, I mean, how did he know he, he was ill? What were his symptoms? So he had had cancer um, seven or eight years previous before I, I knew him and he'd had a kidney removed. Um, but that was pretty much all the treatment that he had. So short, about six months after Phelan was born, he was, started suffering with back pain. 
and just in f bad form, you know. Um, and he was going for neuromuscular therapy to help with the back pain. And that therapist, the whole back area, she kind of worked on the whole back area. And after about a month or two, all the generalized swelling went down. And what was revealed was a, a mass that she spotted and kind of said, listen, I think you need to go and get it checked out. And he knew immediately. Okay. Then, and didn't tell me and went and got it checked out. Only I guess when you're a cancer survivor, yes. it sits with you. Yes. Oh, you know, that worry and that wonder, will it come back? Yes, yeah. Whereas I was yeah. kind of oblivious. Well, you were in, in your way. blissful bubble, bubble yeah. of, I've met the love of my life, yes. we have this beautiful baby. Yes, 100%, yeah. yeah. Um, Why do you think he kept it from you? It's probably because he knew and he was just processing. Yeah. And then once he, so he just kept it from me for a couple of days, just till he knew it for sure. Um, and then he told me, yeah, so then the... Do you remember that moment? Oh, yeah, sitting on the kitchen table, sitting at the kitchen table, saying he was going into Tala the next day, and it was, yeah, yeah for sure. Mm. It was a huge moment, and yet still, you know, not, you know, we, we would get through, like, we were going to, we were going to fight it. We didn't know it was stage four, we didn't know, we didn't have any diagnosis, really. A, a prognosis rather at that so point. as far as you were concerned this is a massive hurdle that yeah. we'll get over we together get over. everything will be okay yes. yeah yeah so he went into Tala then Helen and what happened Tala is a local hospital in Dublin for yes. those who are abroad listening yes. um so yeah we were 10 days in Tala um yeah funny some of the things I remember like you know I was breastfeeding Phelan at the time and I, so my family kind of took over and started minding Phelan and that was, um, you know, I kind of got my period for the first time during that time after, after breastfeeding, you know, when you stop breastfeeding for, for you, your period comes, comes back. So things like that I really remember of just the, the, the detachment from my baby as well, you know, yeah. very, very suddenly and um, just being in the hospital constantly. Um, I even recorded the conversation with the doctors when they gave us the final, you know, where the prognosis and the, the diagnosis officially. So I would still have that listen to it. You recorded that yes, um, in case you miss something? In case I miss something. That's a, like a really clever thing to do, actually, mm. because often when we're receiving bad news, mm. you know, when the stress mm. response kicks in, it's really hard for us to retain information. Mm. Mm. So to, to know if you're going for a difficult meeting to record it is yeah. a really good idea. So you have that. It was really helpful for us, like on one level, because the doctor said it was, it was kidney cancer metastasized, but that kidney ca this can be very slow um, growing. Um, and Keenan had asked what, what did he recommend we do? And he had said, wait and see. You know, he'd, so he, there was no real medical uh, intervention at that point. It was just a wait and see and that he could have radiotherapy. So that suited our, what we wanted to do because um, we wanted to then try acupuncture and homeopathy and nutrition. We wanted to do all those things. So we weren't going to wait, we were going to act, but in our own way. You were going to support in the manner that you knew how. Exactly. In a holistic yeah. way. Yeah. Um, but it caused some tension with um, his family. So it caused some difficulty because it felt like, you know, you know you're, you're not treating it. So um, in the time after when the dust settled, uh, we were able to kind of say listen this is actually why we were this wasn't something that came from me that this was something that it was an opportunity we were presented as a possibility you know that we there was no other thing to do in that moment there wasn't a medical intervention yeah. so this was an alternative yeah. as well yeah. yeah hi everyone excuse this brief interruption it's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program 
If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. And that can get very messy with families. Yeah. Um, you know, even within a couple as well. Yes. You know, yeah. 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 And people can misunderstand that. You know, a lot of people do decide to take complementary medicine or complementary treatments. Mm-hmm. And that's what they are. They're complementary yes. to yeah. medical intervention. You yeah. Know? Which, th- which this was. Yeah. Um, but in that moment, that initial period, it was a standalone just because there was nothing else. Because, yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing was that his, um, he did have radiotherapy um, as well to help with pain. Um, and the cancer just started to spread really quickly. So just, he'd start to get pain in a different limb or a different bone. And um, so as soon as he got, as soon as it moved or progressed, then they started to treat him with, uh, um, chemo. And I guess at that point it's for pain relief and managing symptoms rather than a cure. Would that be right? Yes. At the time we, we didn't know that. So yeah. at the time we had been given a prognosis of around five years um, and that who knows what might change by then and all that we were going to support it with. Um, what we didn't ask once he once it started to spread quickly was did that change the prognosis? Okay, so you're still living we off still your living original prognosis of five oh, years. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it just shows how difficult it is for our brains to adjust, yeah. and how important it is to get information. Yeah. Okay. The, the, a couple of things around that that I regret. I suppose you know that like I'm, I might do differently um, is it towards the end when he started to get sicker and sicker I did start looking for more information I, um, and I um, but he didn't he didn't want to know um, and I was being encouraged by others to kind of find to, to find I was being told that he wasn't he wasn't going to last very long and, and I didn't believe them. Told by who? His sisters. Okay, so they could see his they could rapid see, decline. Yeah, they could see. They had more experience as well with okay. cancer. And um, so, but I didn't believe them. And so I went and, and then asked, but I, but they were right. Um, but I regret knowing before him, I reg- because that changed a dynamic in our relationship because I knew something and now I was kind of lying to him. Um, and or withholding information. Yeah, withholding. And, and this resonates so much with us. other people mm, I've spoken mm, with. Okay. How so often a partner is left holding information mm. that their loved one doesn't know. Mm. And it does, it can create a wedge between them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah speak a bit more about that, Helen. Yeah, um, yeah, so I just felt that, as particularly at the very end when he was, when the doctor told him that he was dying, um, this, and he died three days later, so this was at the very end, um, he was absolutely devastated and he was, every, everybody knew except him, and he was brokenhearted and he kept saying to me but I'm nobody else why like why are they talking about something else don't they realize that I'm dying but they'd had weeks to kind of process it and get over that initial shock that he was in and I regret that so much I so wish there was that nobody had... accompanying him yes. in the shock yes of it yeah 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 and do you feel Helen that you know at some level that was his choice because he didn't ask? Yes. You know, at some level Absolutely. he was protecting himself. Absolutely, yeah. And there is a lot to be, I think, you know, a, I think you have to take your lead from the, the patient, if you like, the yeah. person who's dying. Um, 
that's my was my understanding of it. I need to take my lead from him. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what I was. What I wish I'd followed more. I followed it in lots of ways, but just that part. Yeah. And do you think it would have been different had he known earlier? Would you have had more conversations around dying and I think we would have had how more he'd like to die? I think we would have had more conversations. We did have those little snippets. He said, I don't want to die at home. I want to die in hospital. And we'd had a home birth, so dying at home would have been very natural to, mm. to us. But he just was very frightened. He was frightened, um, so he wanted to die in hospital, and he got, he felt safe there, um, and he had told me where he wanted to be buried, if he died. Uh, but you know, so at some level he was processing oh, it, yeah. and at another level he was in denial, yeah. which is very common as well. Yeah, he was absolutely processing it. You know, mm. different things when we went into the hospice, and we were just going in. He was going in for pain relief we thought um, you know they were asking certain questions and he answered them in a way that was slightly incorrect but he just I said no that's that's a little bit wrong there Keenan and he goes no 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 it's right and so I left it and months later when um, the death cert came in it was on it in a way that he had said it that really benefited me and our family and um, I won't go into it in much more detail than that but it was it, it really really benefited us and um, so he twisted a he, truth a little bit yes. so that his death search would yes. be more palpable yes. for you yes palatable I should yeah. say yeah and oh. um, oh. so he, he knew he knew and he yeah. was protecting us which is also very very common I, as I understand it, like, yeah. you know, that's that instinct is to, we were all protecting each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet something gets lost in that yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, it's so common, though, to, yeah, everyone is protecting each other, yes. exactly like you said. Yeah. And in that is the opportunity to talk about what are your fears? What are your hopes? Yeah. What are your wishes yeah. for these precious days? Yeah. And yet, um, a palliative care nurse got got sacked by him. <laughs> like you know, not by the HSE, but by him. He was like, "I just, she's not allowed to come back to me again because she had tried to bring up dying." Okay. Just wasn't didn't want to go there. Didn't yeah. Want to talk about it. Yeah. So then yeah. I had to go to a separate meeting with them to discuss, and I had to hold it for him. You know, go no, sorry, look. You know. Yeah. You're right. A really important point as well, mm. because I think the time to start talking about dying and death mm. is probably not when someone is dying. Mm, right. You know, it's something we all need to be talking about all the time yeah. in our lives. You know, every every opportunity we have. Mm. How would you like to die? Or have you any fears about dying? It's something we need to bring into everyday conversation yeah. rather than when someone is just on the cusp, you know. Yeah. And for some people, like exactly like you said, for some people they'll take the lead and they'll they'll name it, and it's their loved ones who don't want to talk about it. Oh, don't be silly! That's not going to happen, yeah. you know, because they can't bear it. And yeah. sometimes we have dying people who d die in quite a isolation because yeah. their loved ones won't meet them in it. Mm. And then we also have people who the denial serves them yeah and at some level that's what they're choosing yeah and it serves them to be able to live yes. for those six months for example um, to live relatively well mm -hmm. and engage and relate mm -hmm. rather than live with fear or anxiety yeah. or panic you yeah. know yeah so it's, it's so true we need everybody needs to be able to choose yeah but maybe we can face it better or maybe we can be better supported to talk about our dying our own deaths if we just talk about it more in life in life you know before we're ill or yeah. before we're facing it yeah yeah i did um i i did this i made this book for him it was going to be just like yeah it was a book with uh, people's uh, little letters or poems or stories from everybody who knew him or everybody who wanted to contribute um, and it turned into a proper book that uh, that we got 
done on Snapfish, one of these photo uh, album, you know, so it was a hardback book that was pictures of him with stories, songs, poems, uh, the most wonderful things, and he read and promises. There's a lot of promises in it from everybody, and so he, 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 I gave that to him for Christmas, um, and he would read it every day and get me to read it to him, um, and then tell, you know. Uh, so it was like, you know, you're the wake. It was like a living wake in a way. You know, I, I felt mm. compelled to have have him know how loved he was mm. before he died um, do you know, cause you, we, that's beautiful yeah. what were the promises um, my brother promised him that he would look after me and Fela his daughters promised him that they would never forget him and that they would always um, tell their children about him um, other people told funny stories of when he was a punk back in the old days in Newbridge and was scared of the chain on his on his own jeans, you know. <laughs> oh, it's incredibly moving. Yeah. Um, one of his daughters who he had a complicated relationship with wrote the most beautiful, um, just a beautiful healing uh, message to him so I buried him with the book as a so it was oh. just so personal to him oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> did you take a copy of it I didn't no <laughs> although well, I only heard the other day that my my brother-in-law was sent out to take a photocopy of it during the funeral so okay. I'm not I only heard that last week wow so I'll have to follow that I up. mean what a gift for Phelan yeah actually yeah yeah, so such a treasure. Yeah. And so you had that together for those, mm -hmm. sometime I assume three or four months of his six month illness? The, uh, which the, book? the book, no, just the last th th week. Oh, okay. Yeah, really just, yeah, the, just the last week. Yeah. Um, because again, it was, it was all about him dying, really. Yeah. And yet we weren't talking about that in a, with those words. Yeah, it's amazing actually that to, to face death doesn't necessarily mean being verbally explicit. Yeah. It can be done in other ways mm. through with music, with imagery, mm. with promises or mm. letters, mm. like at some level it's in there, right? Yeah. Although he's not explicitly hearing those words. Yeah. 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 So how was Keenan's death in the end? Yeah, it was quiet and beautiful and calm. I remember trying to play really kind of gentle music and, you know, try to get everybody not to be talking about other stuff around them, you know, um, and just be present with them. So I was trying to, I felt like I had to manage, it was a big group of people, um, close family, um, between his brothers and sisters and his daughters and myself. But at one point, whenever the nurses were, when he'd fallen into a, a sleep, so he fell into a sleep uh, unconsciousness, um, a sub, yeah, an unconsciousness that he could come out of every so often for about three days. Um, but in one of those, where the nurses were turning him and he woke up and he said, turn off the fucking music. <laughs> so that was the end of the blinky blank. <laughs> <laughs> Take your hippy dippy shite and <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I know it's classic. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no okay. He so was like, no candles yeah. and <laughs> meditating around me, please. <laughs> oh, priceless. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you laugh? Absolutely. <laughs> this is classic. <laughs> I, another lesson in that, like, yes. you know, that's clearly maybe what you would like. Yes. Um, and yeah. forever, it's just so different, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So after Keenan died, mm. you suddenly, I mean, Phelan was how old now at this point? He was a year one, and a bit? He was one and a half, yeah. Yeah. So you've to reestablish mm. a relationship with your baby who you've been handing over to relatives yeah. quite a bit. So Keenan had been in hospice for a month. So I was in there with him, st staying there with him. And so I had to yeah, reestablish this connection. Where was that, Helen? Where? Yeah. In Kildare, the Curragh. Okay, and you were able to stay with him, sleep yes. with him in the room? Yes. 
How lovely. Yeah. yeah. I, I'd like to come back to that maybe towards the end yeah. if you can remind me. Yeah. Um, but we, so myself and Phelan just tried to, I tried to just reconnect really with him. Um, in the, you know, in the, we, we, Keenan was buried in the only natural um, burial ground in Ireland. So it's down in, in um, Bunclody and it's a, a meadow essentially. And with each burial, w you plant a tree so it will turn into a forest. I've never heard of it before. Mm, it's lovely, it's lovely. It's the, um, and can anyone go down there? Absolutely, yeah. Oh my God, sounds divine. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. It's yeah. very beautiful. So, my, so it's beautiful for me and Phelan in particular um, because we would just go down every day in the beginning um, and then every weekend, you know, and so, um, and so we would picnic down there. Um, I've never camped, but that's always something that I'd like to do is to camp down there. You know, it's the type of place that you could, yeah. which is is a wonderful potential from in my view to be able to camp down there, to sleep down there. Um, but so, yeah, we just spent a lot of time. I have so many pictures of Phelan and me just down at the graveyard. And yeah, how was so, it yeah. grieving with a little toddler, one and a half year old, who is probably oblivious to the magnitude of what's just happened in his yeah, life? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Just he's just coming into the magnitude of it now. I'd say at age eight, it was profoundly lonely. Yeah. It was so lonely. Um, I'd say it took me six months to get over the the physical the physicality of caring for him and you know the shock the shock maybe even a year um, but the physicality the just yeah it was six months I remember um, and then that I really kind of started to be just started to feel it after a year I, the sound of my wailing is something that I remember I can still hear it and I would say the first year I began to have this appreciation of the, the con this connection, how guilt and grief are these kind of natural bedfellows. I, I carried a lot of guilt if for that first year. And what was that associated with? It was associated with myself and Keenan's relationship. So. I would say, you know, how I see it, you know, I suppose when, when the, in a relationship, if there's any issues, you, you know, myself and Keenan would have sat down around the kitchen table and thrashed them out, you know? And there's issues in every relationship, Correct. of course. Yeah. So but when he died and there had been these preceding issues, I had just had no way of thrashing them out and kind of, you know, um, you know the way that time when he was in the hospice, you asked me for a divorce. Well, you know, <laughs> were you serious? <laughs> or yeah. um, so in the hospice, he had asked me for a divorce. I had been looking for, I had been nursing him, basically, mammying him maybe a little bit. And it had just pissed him off in the end. And he said, do we live here? I, I, I said, no, we don't live here. And he said, uh, where do we live? I said, a thigh. And he goes, do we live together? And I said, we do, we're married. I said, can I get a divorce? <laughs> do you know? But like he died a week later. It was like a knife in the heart. Oh. But it was a confusion. You, know, you can see his confusion in as Absolutely. well. You know? But it, So I, I had to kind of carry that stuff. Mm. Um, but also, the first year of a child is a tough year for the vast majority of people. And he was unwell during a good part of that first year, unbeknownst to us. So he, as I saw it at the time, he just wasn't quite carrying his weight. And I was a bit um, aggrieved by that, you know, and probably, uh, you know, annoyed. 
and so we hadn't kind of resolved a lot Why of isn't he mucking in with this baby yeah. and what's going on? And yeah. yeah, whereas he was then very we, ill, unbeknownst to both of exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then when he became ill, he he was he was upset with me that I was still putting the baby first. Um, yeah, so he was he was just he found that really really hard. Um, or he and I felt from my perspective, I felt that, that I had these two number ones. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of partners find that really hard when a baby yeah. comes along. Yeah, and the attention is diverted. Yeah. Never which, mind being which, terminally ill. Correct, which he had had. Yeah. He had struggled with that when when yeah. he when the baby had come along. Yeah, um, he was a little bit older than than myself and was was just not a hundred percent sure about having a baby at all. So whenever the baby did come along and a lot of my attention was gone, he kind of felt that my that my love had been withdrawn rather than my attention. Yeah. So I kind of felt this was all going to just work out in the end. We we're going to be fine. And I was 100% in love with yeah. this man. But, but you didn't we, have we the end in the end. We didn't have that time. Yeah. Um, so I had to work out a lot of, a lot of relationship stuff that I needed to try to, that I had nobody to relate with. So I was yeah. sort of relating with him um, in my mind. And... I can be a little bit self-critical and also I was kind of I felt I was relating to to his can what I described as at that time as his cancer voice which was a little bit critical too yeah um you know it was yeah it was he was he was very fearful so and when he when a lot of people become fearful they become angry I probably didn't quite recognize that when I'm fearful I retreat you know, but others, they can get more assertive. Um, so he was more assertive and more um, vocal. Uh, in his, uh, you know, so I was just, that. I had to listen to all of that. Anyway, in the end, I went to Ibiza and did this amazing, had this amazing healing session with this beautiful woman in, in a, a little cabin not dissimilar to this where I had this conversation with Keenan that went on for about two hours, guided by her, and it just put all of that to rest. So just having that witnessed and contained yeah. by someone made all the difference. All the difference. Yeah. Myself and Keenan had this, and just forgave each other. Yeah. You know, I even, if she had me visualize where we went and I still go to that place and remember that conversation. It feels like that conversation has happened. It's become a memory it for you. It has become a memory for me. It's really, really powerful, mm. Helen. Mm. For anybody listening, you know, it's never too late yeah. to find a way to make amends with somebody who was dead yeah. or to forgive yourself or to have that healing conversation, yeah. you know, via your heart. Yes. You know, there's so many ways. Yeah. That's yeah. when, for me, that's when the, the grieving really began then. I was okay. caught up in this other, this, the guilt. So then I was really able to just mourn his loss. Yeah. You know, after that. And how long after his death was that, Helen? Where the, when you feel the mourning began? I would say it was probably a year and a half. Okay. And it's like, and you're, you're making so many really important points because so many of us out there in the world believe if somebody dies, we row in, we are around for the funeral, we support them for a few weeks, maybe a few months. Mm. And for many of us, our mourning doesn't even begin mm. until six months later, a year later, mm. two years later, for a variety of reasons, you know. And it's so important to know that. Yeah. Like, you know, a, a bereavement like that changes everything fundamentally moving forward. Yes. It's There isn't a contained time frame around it. Yeah. And, it, you know, you, you've said that Phelan is only beginning mm. to understand the magnitude of his grief. And I assume he doesn't remember his dad. However, he's living with the loss every day. Mm -hmm. Every time he hears someone else say, Daddy, yeah. you know, he's, he's living with that. And yeah. 
I just wish more people would understand that and mm. have more compassion mm. um, and don't make assumptions about people's grief or about the time frame that has passed. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I think people, I think it's hard for people to have compassion. My understanding of, of people, you know, they have to feel it to be compassionate and and for some you know for you know some people losing their partner is unimaginable you know they just don't they don't want to feel that and which I understand you know they just they just can't feel it um similar with somebody who's lost a child like you know I, I don't know if I can go into that to really be to really be as compassionate as the uh, bereaved person might actually need me to be you know mm. that's what I felt as because to be truly empathic yeah. with someone we need to be able to touch on that yeah. place in ourselves that has some sense of that mm. pain mm -hmm. and you know if we're having a good day we may not want to do that but I do believe it's possible and you know even as a grief therapist people often say is that really hard because I do need to be able to touch right. into my compassion, my empathy. But it's really what I'm doing is I'm opening my heart right. to someone. That's not a bad thing. Okay. And although I might be be moved, you know, or be deeply touched, it's not a bad thing. It's not a difficult thing. Okay. So I would say to anyone listening, mm -hmm. just drop into your heart. Okay. It doesn't need more than that. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to bring up all your own suffering. Right. Yeah. You just need to remember a place in you that knows an element of that pain okay. to be able to resonate with somebody. Yeah, yeah that's a oh. good point. Yeah, so, so seven and a half years later now? Yeah. How are you doing? How are you doing now? Yeah, you know, I have a good friend, um, Bavine. And she would. She lost her husband um, too, and she w has done a lot of Byron Katie's, a lot of work with Byron Katie. You know that, yeah. um, loving what is. You know, um, and I remember I carried a book around with me, and I think that's the title. Is it? Do you know Byron Katie's work? No, uh, I don't. What, yeah, I so know who she is, but I don't know yeah, her work. So, loving what is was a book that I carried around with me that Bavian had had recommended. Would you just rewind and tell us how you <laughs> met Bavian? <laughs> I, I am actually for those people listening. Um, I'm still camping in the south of Ireland. <laughs> We're sitting in my caravan right now, and I've just met Bavian actually mm -hmm. in the last day or two, and Bavian will be the next guest on Shapes of Grief. Bavian was in the middle of telling me how you guys met today, but had to run off to one of her children. So how, will you, maybe you tell us, how did you meet Bavian? My pleasure. Um, so Keenan had died maybe three or four months. And I went into a bookstore, a local bookstore, and picked up a big pile of books. I remember going out with this pile of books on grief all the usual suspects, all the, the main books on grief, um, including one called Love's Last Gift by Bavine Ramsey. And I read all of the books and Bavine's was the one that resonated the most with me. Uh, she was a, a young woman who had very, very suddenly lost her husband, um, very, very young and everything about how Bavine had um, approached grief and how she had transformed it um, in so far as possible into something positive, trying to just take any any little bit of positiveness from it. Or manageable even, yes. just making it manageable. Yes. She had young children as well, Very didn't she? Young, two, two, young two or three young children, yeah. Two young children, one the same age as Phelan. Yeah. Her youngest. And um, so she is, her book resonated. She, she was going in, in the same schooling system as, as my son in a Waldorf school. Um, but she had moved to Brazil. 
and um, I lapped up the book. I read every inch of it and, you know, re over two days. Um, and then after I finished it, I, I started Googling her to see how I could connect with her. Um, but I, I'm not on Facebook and I, I, didn't, I didn't want to kind of get into Facebook in that particular moment. Um, so I kind of let it lie for a few weeks. And then I was going to a puppet show in the woods in Blessington as part of the Steiner School that we were joining. And as I was driving in, the facilitator asked me to just reverse out of the way because Bavine wanted to come out. And whenever she said the word Bavine, every hair on my body just lifted. And I said, is that Bavine Ramsey? And she said, it is. And I said, I've just read her book. And she said, oh, it's a beautiful book. And I said, my husband has just died. And she said, oh, okay. And she ran off and, and stopped Bavine. And I reversed in, oh jumped out God. of the car and ran to meet her. And we met and cried and hugged. And we've been friends ever since. <laughs> That is, oh my God, the synchronicity <laughs> the of that. The synchronicity of that. Those two guys must have been laughing wherever <laughs> they were going. <laughs> Look at the pair of them <laughs> in a field in Ireland, yeah. just she randomly. She just come back from Brazil. On holidays no, or something? No, she was just, she decided to move for a year. Okay. Um, and she was <sighs> joining the Steiner School. So oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh my God. And she had only had the book published a year, unbeknownst to myself. I didn't realise that it was only out Brand in new. 2012. Yeah. So that was a friendship that was meant to happen. Yes. So Helen, you, when, you know, you said you were terribly lonely mm. and isolated mm. in the early days. What was it like for you to meet somebody else who yeah. knew exactly what yeah. you were going through? Yeah, it was golden. It was golden. It was, it was the everything that we that I needed it was the to, to have somebody else who really understood and who you could have a laugh with yeah. do you know yeah the, the black humor came out <laughs> buckets and she was a couple of years on as well you know she was a few years on so we were really able to she was really able to hold me yeah. in it like in so much of it yeah yeah I went to a lot of, um, I did a lot of group therapy, I did a lot of counselling, single and group. But the group was, was really, really helpful. But I found that as a, a widow, I was very, I was the youngest in the group. So to find, you know, I didn't know any other women who were uh, widowed with young children. But when I did meet uh, widows and widowers, I got the most comfort. At the most crack. And like Bavian only looks like she's about 29 yeah. <laughs> and she's already been widowed for over 10 years, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. so she she must have been incredibly young. She was very young. So I think yeah. she was 32 when she was widowed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Her husband was 38. Yeah. So like I yeah. said, yeah. we'll talk about Bavian yes. or talk with Bavian yes. in the next episode. Yeah. Another interesting point you're bringing up is how important it is for people to find others who have a similar grief, yeah. you know, um, similar circumstances, because mm. even one small change in the circumstance can mean you're you're grieving quite different ways yeah. or or you've different issues and themes that arise. Yeah. Whereas when you can meet someone who's around your age, has had a similar loss in a similar way mm. with a similar set of circumstances, it can be such a relief. Such a relief. I, I it's like I'm not the only one on the yeah. planet yeah. with this particular set of circumstances. Yeah. I find that really interesting. You know, I remember even talking to the counsellor about that. Like, why, why do I need that so much? You yeah. need to be understood. Why do I feel so misunderstood? Yeah. Um, and, and then I also realised that whenever I had a new baby and I was really struggling, that I was drawn to these mother and baby groups. Yeah to be understood, to, to share. So to find that group or, or people or persons um, who understood, yeah. it's incredibly beneficial. Yeah, and I, I know with Shapes of Grief on Facebook, we have a private group for people who are grieving. Okay. 
and I just love the conversations I'm seeing there because people are able to come in not with the usual platitudes or silver lining it as Brene Brown would say but people are really able to meet each other in the bad moments and the darkness of it all Um, and in the humour of it all at times as well but it's like you know that dark humour you say Mm -hmm. you shared you could only do that with each other because nobody else yeah yeah yeah, like someone else made a joke about (laughs) you know Keenan's cancer voice or you know it would be profoundly offensive probably yeah but because she'd been through it yeah it's amazing that difference yeah yeah what helped you in those years like you know I know it was lonely and isolating and I remember probably seeing you around that time Mm. but I didn't know you Mm. on the camp Mm. and with Phelan when he was about one and a half Mm. in nappies running around Mm. um I did not know Mm -hmm that you were a grieving mother, Mm -hmm. that you had just lost Mm -hmm. your husband. Mm -hmm. And how would that have changed how I might have been around you had I known? Mm -hmm. Might I have come up and sat beside you or offered to take Phelan off for an hour? Mm -hmm. You know, the the loneliness you must Mm -hmm. have felt being surrounded by 500 people and most of us didn't know. I think being, I felt the hardest thing I was being surrounded by happiness and yeah. you know the, the dancing joy and I realized how much joy you needed to have to be able to dance you know mm. there's certain even if you're not you know there's a, just you need to have a certain amount of joy to mm. wish to dance but I remember being here at this camp and just to put that into context yes. we're at we're we're sitting in a a place called Earth Song. It happens once a year and it's a dance camp. It's Ireland's answer to Burning Man, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a drug free zone, alcohol free zone, no electricity, no phones, no laptops. We literally back to the earth and off the grid mm-hmm. for the 10 days. So, you know, I, like I said, I would have seen Helen here eight years ago for yeah. the first time. Yeah. So surrounded by the happiness yeah. around you. Yeah, that was fair. That was yeah. lonely but I remember I remember leaving a dance thing just not being able and going into the forest and sitting down uh, at the base of a tree and just crying my eyes out um, but as the beauty of this place I remember somebody must have witnessed me um, a musician and he sat at the base of another tree and just left me be but played a wind instrument played a flute and just played me through it um, and then whenever I was finished I just I just got up and, and touched his shoulder and walked away and and then I realized was somebody else at the base of another tree crying too you know he was and he just kept playing until I know know. and like how how simple just being present not trying to change it or fix it just playing you through it like oh my god what a gift yeah yeah Yeah, gosh I'm very moved by that as you can (laughs) see (laughs) yeah yeah so what 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 helped you in those years Helen Mm. The re- I always ask this question because I want people listening to learn how to support mm. each other in grief or to learn what help to ask for mm. if you're grieving. To learn what help to ask for. Mm. I wasn't, I found I wasn't very good at asking. Like, um, you need so much help. It's, I think, you know, somebody saying, like, from a practical perspective, think of all the things a person might need and ask them about that you know rather than asking that person what do they need because they don't even have the capacity to think of what they need you're putting the burden on the grieved person who's barely managing already yeah Yeah. they need to eat so can I bring food somebody to mind their small child (laughs) they need to sleep so someone needs to mind the small child because there's no one else doing it yeah yeah. yeah, and just um, just company, just somebody around the table, you know, just and again, you know, I suppose they're taking their lead from from you, 
you know, I think that's, you know, then when the role changes a little bit. And so I am a talker, so I would certainly always want to talk. I, as I said, I love hearing Keenan's name being mentioned. I love every opportunity to say his name. So, you know, to be able to talk about him um, is so important for me. I still, you know, think it's important. Yeah. It's and yet so many people yeah. don't because they don't want to upset you. Yeah. But it's like Especially you're living with people. the grief constantly. Yeah. So saying Keenan's yeah. name again yeah. and again, Keenan, yeah, yeah. Keenan, <laughs> is, you know, it's lovely. Your face lights up yeah. every time I say his name, yeah. Yeah. you know. And yes, it might bring tears and yes, it might trigger sadness. And that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of the love and yeah, the grief that's the all in there. It's part of the love. Yeah. yeah, it is. And how are you now, Helen? It's poignant that I'm here having this conversation with you actually mm -hmm. seven years after I first yes, saw you yeah. when you were right in the thick of your grief yeah. and I didn't know. Yeah. And now I've known you the last few years. Yeah. What you're back here at Earth Song seven years later. Yes. What's changed? What's different? Um. I remember a friend saying in the very early years, this is kind of like what not to say, in the early months, um, is it better to have loved and lost than never loved at all? And uh, I remember kind of wanting to just smack her one, really. <laughs> but she, she was right, you know. Turns out she was right. And I feel like um, I went and risked it again. Um, three years ago and uh, I met a really really lovely man and a man who can um, who can who knows that I am still in love with my husband um, and he's just so comfortable with that and he wants to hear about Keenan and wants to hear the different stories and we'll are we allowed to say this man's name yeah. just <laughs> <laughs> yes we are <laughs> dave dave yeah hello so, dave <laughs> um so, and he's just so good at um talking about keenan for phelan you know <sighs> he'll bring him up even when i'm not there like he goes oh yeah i think that's a bit like your dad you know i think your dad might do something like that you know from what i've heard how gorgeous it's yeah it's magic how gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like, like I didn't want, when I went into it, I was kind of, I don't want to have like, a, I don't want to have a second best love. You know, Keenan was a, like a, my great love. So how do I, how do I love again like that? And, um, but I kind of feel like it, in my head, the way I, I look at it now is that it could even be a better, it could even be a better love. Not because Dave is a better guy necessarily than Keenan, but that I might be a better partner and lover and wife than uh, for having gone through this experience, for having loved and lost. Um, and for having gotten through it. How has the experience changed you? So I would say that how I have always described it is that all the balls went up into the air. And a lot of them have landed, but some of them are still up in the air. So I'm still changed and changing. And some of the original me has come back. Um, and some of it's you know, for good, for better, for worse, is gone for good, I would say. But you know, it's that sense of yeah. uh, still seven or eight years on, the balls haven't all landed. It's, um, it's, it really strikes me just this imagery, the, you know, the balls up in mm. the air like that and, and some have come back and some are gone for good. The imagery that bereaved people come up with, <laughs> you know, that that's so similar. Mm. You know, it's like an explosion went off in me and there's bits of me everywhere and I'm mm. trying to find them. Mm. Or it's like I'm holding back a tsunami. Mm. Um, you know, this feeling of being scattered everywhere and trying to find myself. Or it's like I was a maid jigsaw and now there's yeah. bits of me that are gone yeah. and other bits fitting in. 
it's incredible how our language doesn't seem to suit the experience, the physical experience Mm. of grief. and, and, and so I find that a lot of bereaved people, we make up stories, mm. we make up, we make up the imagery yeah. to suit the feeling because it's, it's like we just don't have it out there, mm. you know. Mm. It's helpful. I, I think I'm going to put a book together on that, actually, okay. of all the imagery that people come up with that describes how they feel about yeah. the experience. Yeah. Interestingly, I went to a, another therapist and at the time, I had this image, I was in a rowing boat with my son, I had no oar, I was lost at sea, there was a storm, I couldn't see land, do you know, this was, this was where she would brought me, like to get, explain where, how I felt, and as part of the therapy she suggested visualising an oar you know, and then kind of taking me through the, what my vision of my, my visualization of it or the image of it and just giving me a couple of different images to help me, you know, you know, before long I saw a lighthouse, <laughs> do you know, and it was yeah. very, it was really, really helpful to yeah. just turn that, that despairing imagery a, a little, yeah, you know, just inch by inch. And that's where I feel the creative arts therapies can be profoundly supportive in grief. Mm. You know, sometimes more so than talk therapies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Profoundly. Yeah. So you're working with that imagery all the time Mm. with them. Mm. Yeah. So what next, Alan? (laughs) Well, one. Actually, just before we go mm-hmm. there, you asked me to remind you yeah. about your time in the hospice in Kildare. Yeah, so I was actually, I was, what, from my time in the hospice, from that month of staying there with him, um, I was sleeping on the floor when he was in a hospital bed. Um, and I remember lying on the floor because I had like four to five weeks, I had a lot of time to look up at the bed. And I had been coming from co-sleeping with my son, our son. Um, and I remember thinking, God, I wonder, is there a better way to do this? I wonder, is there a better way for the dying to create some sort of co-sleeping arrangement, some kind of equipment that could attach on to a bed. Because you're looking up at the bottom of his mattress probably, are you? Bo- yeah, I was absolutely. Wires. The mechanisms yeah. of the bed. Um, because I think that, because myself and Keenan, we, 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 we would try to hold hands like that. Yeah. It's just crap. Yeah. And um, while I would stand up and, and be with him and hold his hand, you know, whenever I was, you know, whenever I was exhausted and ready to fall, we couldn't lay, lie side by side. And yeah. those, those opportunities for what I, you know, pillow talk. Yeah. The potential for that yeah. um, is gone when you're when you're so far away from each other. You know. I mean, it's already being it's already so isolating to be dying and yeah. to be suffering with cancer. Yeah. You know, the touch that could help. You yeah. know having your beloved yeah. beside you in bed yeah. if you have one. The importance of touch, yeah. the importance of touch. Yeah. Um, again, coming f- so close on the back of being a new mom and mm. birth um, and the, 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 you know, the skin on skin that, that touch, the, the absolute importance in life of touch and yeah. the same in death. Yeah. Um, so I think those two were very close for me. And in grief, mm-hmm. yes. you know, yeah. If, you, if you're close to someone, I like offer to lie with them, yes. you know, yeah. To have that physical touch yeah. to regulate yourself. So, so what happened with the co-sleeping so, idea? Yeah. So look, I've, I've, still kind of researching it really. Um, yeah. There's a and there's certainly a, a need for it. Uh, I've chatted with Bavin about it, and there's um, there's no there's doesn't exist in Brazil. We've looked in 
the UK, we've connected with all the hospices in the UK and none of them have a similar arrangement, something that's um, movable or mobile that you can put up and down, Yeah. that nurses can, can get at a, yeah. an acutely ill person in a, in a hurry if necessary. Yeah. Um, so there seems to be a real appetite for it and a, a need for it. So the hospitals in Ireland and the hospices are all interested in it. So just, mm. just putting it out there to anybody else who has anything to add to that. I think it would. So, so any bed makers or bed designers listening? Yes. There's a niche here that's, yeah. you know, really needs to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or anybody with any other ideas around it? Yeah, I yeah, think it's a yeah, yeah, it's a need. Yeah, yeah, touch and death. So when I asked you what next, and then we went back <laughs> to that, that is something that you would like to yeah. see executed. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Executed. Yeah, yeah, I think I would. Would love to see that coming in for the dying. You know, so when my time comes, um, that I can lay beside. You know my love or your child or your sister or whoever absolutely yeah yeah absolutely the preciousness of that and just to be on the same physical level Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. so many of the dying you know are lying in bed often and everyone else seated or standing around them how lovely would it be to be physically met by someone lying beside you to be held properly held like yeah. yeah Helen, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the opportunity to Yeah, very, very moving story. And um, you've shared some absolute gems that I've no doubt will help our listeners. I've learned from you as well today. Thanks, Liz. I've learned from so many of the other people who've who've been on the podcast. I've, as I said to you earlier, binged, listened to uh, many of them. And so it's this it's a really wonderful thing that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's lovely to have your name up there now amongst everybody else. And uh, I'm excited to speak to Bavian tomorrow. And um, I love when our some of the stories and experiences are linked with each other. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You're not alone. Once again, please do consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, and we rely on your support to keep us going. The music was written by Silly Wizard and performed by Sue Hart and Martin Craddock, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well and take very good care. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing. The spray hung like jewels in her hair. Lit the rock, the rock of that desolate landing. Oh, as though there were none, she stood there. Long